as you look at our Fortune 500 list today, it's virtually nil when it comes to companies that are black owned uh, or owned by a, a Latinx uh, business owner. When we start to see that pipeline coming forth, then we'll know that we're seeing success and we'll have a, a stronger economy, a stronger community, and we'll have even more, uh, hopefully, partnerships that we're able to build a banking relationship with as well. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Sustainability is about making positive impacts. One of the major impacts businesses have on the economy and society comes from their procurement of goods and services to deliver on their own business strategies. These investments can make or break local economies and present great potential to create inclusive economic growth. Today's podcast will focus on supplier diversity. We'll be speaking to two leading thinkers within BMO and the financial sector on this topic. We'll unpack the motivations behind supplier diversity programs, best practices, and the opportunities it unlocks for economic opportunity and empowerment. Eric Smith is a vice chair with BMO Harris Bank. As an ambassador for the bank, Eric leads several firm-wide initiatives, including with regulatory affairs, community affairs, and diversity and inclusion. Eric has a long history of commitment to the nonprofit and civic community, as reflected through his board service and volunteerism. He currently serves, for example, as chairman of the board for the Chicago Urban League and the Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital Foundation. Eric is also a member of the Commercial Club, Economic Club of Chicago, Executives Club of Chicago, and the Executive Leadership Council. Eric has championed the BMO Empower Initiative, which is a $5 billion commitment over five years to address key barriers faced by minority businesses, communities, and families in the United States. Through lending, investing, giving, and engagement in local communities, BMO's tackling barriers to inclusion in the financial services industry to create more opportunity for recovery and success. Christine Canning was appointed as head of supplier relationship management at BMO in January of 2020. In this role, she's responsible for defining standards and systems to drive strong supplier performance. Her mandate includes BMO's supplier diversity program, focused on increasing the strength of the bank's supply chain by ensuring it reflects the diversity of the communities that BMO serves. Eric and Christine, thank you for speaking with us today about your important work. Let me start by asking you a little bit about your interest in this topic of supplier diversity and the work that you do in this area. Eric, I'm going to start with with you. If you could tell us, you know, you've had an impressive career in banking and you now have a key business-facing role within BMO, but you also focus on diversity and economic empowerment and supplier diversity and inclusion as part of that work. How did you get connected to supplier diversity in the course of your work as a banker and what does it mean to you? Sure. Thanks, Michael. And it's a pleasure to uh, to join. Uh, I think as a banker, uh, the one of the things that is most important is to really think about the intersection of how banks create and help to drive uh, economic growth and development and for me, it's very important to think about how the public and private sector can come together to accomplish that. 
as I look at sort of the history of supplier diversity, uh, it is one that is deeply rooted in the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. Following the race riots in Detroit in 1968, General Motors actually set up what is regarded as one of the first supplier diversity programs, and much of the American auto industry followed suit. Early movers in the electronics industry also did the same thing, like IBM, uh, with a very robust supplier diversity program. And then later, there were laws that were actually established to encourage uh, government contractors to include minority-owned businesses. As I think about sort of the economic crisis that we're going through right now, um, I think it's it's absolutely critical that we look to the purchasing power of companies to think about how we can uh, promote inclusive economic recovery. And in doing that, you can look at some of the basic economic data that's out there. And for instance, the Small Business Administration estimates that there are approximately 8 million minority-owned companies here in the U.S. And if you think about what the purchasing power is for uh, those MBEs, they generate about $400 billion in economic output that leads to the creation or the preservation of over 2 million jobs and $49 billion in annual revenue for local states, uh, governments, and for federal tax authorities. So this is an important issue that we have to remain focused on uh, as we think about how we build back uh, better and stronger and in a transformative way. That's fantastic. And it's pretty clear that there's this huge social impact in this kind of approach to supplier diversity. Christine, for you, this is core to your work in supplier relationship management. And it's also something that you're passionate about personally. Can you tell me about supplier diversity at BMO? How did the program come about and what does it involve? And how did you get involved in the program and, and what does it mean to you? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to to cover those things. And, and thanks, Michael. Supplier diversity at BMO, I suspect in our firm, as in many others, is an ongoing journey. For us, that journey has been going on for at least the last 10 years, um, as we've been really building a program that uh, that focuses around making sure that we are building a supply chain that, that is diverse. And that comes together in a number of different ways. It's part of our sourcing process as we go out and uh, and look for suppliers to help us out with the with our needs. We want to make sure that we are being inclusive of diverse suppliers in that process. Uh, we're really focused on you know what what you measure you manage, uh, and so we're focused very much on reporting on okay what do we know about what we're doing and are we consistently getting better year over year. We've learned that you can't do this entirely independently. And so a big uh, area of our program is in the partnerships that we have and the outreach that we do in order to make sure that we're doing that important work of connecting good work that needs doing <laughs> with good firms that uh, that are available to do the work. It's, it's harder than you would think to to connect those dots. And another big part of the program that we run really focuses around education. And we see that going in a couple of different ways. First of all, education of the people that work at BMO about the benefits of a diverse supply chain, as well as the, the what and the how, how do I actually make that happen is a big part of our our education focus. And uh, we also do a bunch of education working with suppliers as, as we get into, okay, what's it like to work with a company like ours? What do our processes look like? And can we remove barriers to make it easier to, to make those connections? So we're on an ever 
improving journey of, uh, of, of, you know, constantly moving the bar higher and holding ourselves accountable to a, to a higher standard. For me, it's been about a year since I have been really involved with this process. And it is just fascinating to see the depth of amazing talent that is out there um, and, and think of ways that we can take the work that we all want to do, uh, which is to find opportunities in order to and get them into the right hands uh, and kind of marry up the intent as well as the processes and the framework that let us actually act on that intent. Uh, in a, in a large organization, it's, uh, it's easier said than done to say, okay, we're going to go do a thing. And so where I'm really passionate about is finding ways that we can, uh, can turn our intent into action. Thanks, Christine. And when we were preparing for this podcast and having discussions with you and, and Eric, it's, it became clear to me that you, you two have collaborated on on this in, in your work. Can you, one or both of you, tell me a little bit more about how you've worked together on, on supplier diversity topics? Sure. I'm really honored to have the opportunity to work with uh, Christine, obviously, and our procurement team. Uh, as a vice chairman here at BMO, um, I was able to really partner with our procurement team to help to develop a strategy uh, for how we can bolster our uh, supplier diversity initiative. Uh, we started first by reorganizing our contract staffing program to include more uh, diverse suppliers, exactly as Christine uh, indicated. Uh, we also worked with our facilities management companies to increase their goals for how many of the suppliers they work with uh, can subcontract for work that they do, uh, which also brings a benefit to us. And then we really took a, a, more, a step back and said, how do we put in place a strategic framework so that we can identify uh, clear goals and objectives that we can guide toward as our North Star? And what we decided was that we wanted to ensure that we could spend, on average, between 350 and $400 million in working with diverse partners uh, across North America. And in order to do that, we needed to set goals for each of our lines of businesses and across our functional areas, and to also make sure that we could set a strategic plan in place for each of those, those business units to make sure that they could drive uh, towards success and meeting those goals. And doing that, we wanted to also cast a broad net to make sure that we're going beyond perhaps just the, the traditional areas that have been uh, typically considered easy uh, low-hanging areas for supplier diversity, whether that's facilities management or construction, uh, but we wanted to broaden it and go into professional services, areas like accounting and marketing and technology and legal, so that, again, we're, we're being very uh, purpose-driven and intentional around how we're driving and promoting uh, that diversity through our supply chain. And then lastly, making sure that we're working with many of our large suppliers uh, whether it's a Microsoft uh, or one of our other major vendors to say, what are you doing to help us make sure that we can increase um, not only our tier one spend, but our diversity spend across the bank and every every facet. So Eric has covered a bunch of the things that we've done together, just a little bit on the on the mechanics of how all of that works. Uh, we have an Enterprise Supplier Diversity Council. Uh, and so that is recently an Enterprise Council. Um, we've had it in the States for, for quite some time. The practice of supplier diversity is a little bit mature, more mature in the States than it is up here in Canada where I am. But uh, we looked and said, you know what, we do business all over North America, we do business all over the world, but pre predominantly in North America. And so we want to make sure that we're having everybody at the enterprise look at this. And so when we think about 
structuring so that we get action from our intent. We have this council that is an enterprise council. Eric chairs it. And and my team, the supplier diversity part of my team is really focused on coordinating everybody's efforts. It started from going and saying, okay, this is our ambition. And so this is our enterprise goal. And this is how we're going to allocate that out to our different lines of business. And now we work with each of the lines of business in what our working committees to take a look at what opportunities do we have? How are we going after those ones? What do we need? Who needs to take the, the accountability for that? And so, you know, we've got a bunch of folks within our lines of business that are really focused on working those opportunities and helping, helping take them to fruition. And every once in a while, we need a bit of a push from a, from a senior level. And so what tends to happen, uh, is that we will bring that back up to Eric and or the council as needed to say, okay, I think we've taken this as far as we can and we need uh, need somebody a bit more senior to help us nudge it in the right direction. So that idea of senior level support is not just in the statement up front, it's also in the ongoing, all right, we need to get this past the finish line, here's the help that we need. And Christine, both you and Eric have mentioned this idea of a framework. Can you tell us more about how frameworks for a supplier diversity program should be built and what kind of resources that, that businesses can leverage in order to do that? And who should really be involved in the building of a framework like that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing, we've kind of talked around it a little bit, but I, I'll maybe just ground us in a couple of uh, of key concepts about the different types of diverse spend, because we talk about tier one spend and tier two spend. And any good program is built around both of those things. So tier one spend would be spend that we have directly uh, with a diverse supplier. And we track a number of different types of diverse suppliers, but this would be, for instance, uh, Eric mentioned our contract talent program. So a good number of the firms that we work with in that program are minority owned or women owned or LGBTQ owned. Uh, and so money that we spend with the work that we do with them would be tier one. So that is one piece of, of spend that needs to be considered and reported. The other piece is when you're working with your larger prime suppliers that are unlikely to have that uh, 51% ownership that we uh, track, then we can say, okay, but the work that you're doing on our behalf, how how much are you including diverse suppliers in that work? So whether it's subcontracting something out or saying, okay, as part of this work that we do for you, we're going to actually work with a, with a diverse firm as well. That gets us to our tier two spend. Um, all of those spends and, and the, certification that says these are definitely diverse suppliers that you're working with can be really assisted by there's a number of different certifying bodies that work with different businesses to certify yes absolutely this is a minority owned business uh, or a women owned business a good example in uh, the context of minority owned businesses we work with the national minority supplier development council in the u.s and with the Canadian Aboriginal and Minority Supplier Council in Canada. And so when we talk about how are we going to, you know, to know how we're doing with these pieces, we'll work with those groups to say, can we confirm that there is certification here? Okay, great. We're going to include that in our, our reporting. 
a great source for how to get started with a supplier diversity program. I mean, they, they all are going to involve in some way reporting on and understanding who you're doing business with, whether it's tier one or tier two. There's lots of different ways that you could set your program up, but any of the NMSDCs of the world or CAMZ here in Canada, any of these areas, part of what they do is not only work with companies that want to be certified um, as being diverse owned and, and gain access to the larger companies that they would have access to because they have that certification, but they also work with larger companies. And so we find a lot of the times when we have conversations with larger companies, they're actually just starting up a program of this sort. And they need a little bit of help thinking about, okay, well, how, how would I do that? How do I understand what I, what I have, what we're already spending uh, in this space? And so a lot of what we find that we end up doing is connecting those, uh, those suppliers with the certifying bodies who will all have some version of, so you want to have a supplier diversity program, here's how you go about getting that set up. So that would be, I think, a really important spot to, to send people to be who are thinking about setting up uh, a framework like this. You know, having a framework is obviously critical, but it's one part of it. The, the other big piece of it is going to be to get internal buy-in for uh, an approach like this. Eric, from your experience, what have you learned about the best way to socialize these kinds of frameworks and programs and get that kind of internal buy-in within the business to uh, you know, make sure that it's being implemented to the fullest extent and it's benefiting both the community as, as well as the business itself? Sure. I think the uh, most important way is to really present it as a business case and to demonstrate the value proposition. Uh, for us, we see uh, diversity as being uh, core to our values. We believe in zero barriers, uh, not only for our clients, but for the communities that we serve and for our employees. And having a robust supplier diversity program uh, goes to the heart of the, those sort of values. I think it's also important that as uh, business leaders, that as we uh, kind of build out the strategic framework that Christine has described, that we also have metrics that we evaluate our performance against so that we can hold ourselves accountable uh, to meeting these goals and uh, we can build in you know, goals that are achievable, but that also have some stretch. Um, I think the value proposition though is what I'll ultimately come back to. And from that perspective, the way we've thought about it uh, at BMO uh, is to understand uh, what benefit this has to our broader society at large and our ecosystem. Uh, we believe that th at the core of racial and social equity uh, is having a, a fair and equitable playing ground. And in order to do that, uh, you really look at sort of some of the underlying issues that we're dealing with from a, a racial wealth gap. And if I were to look at data, for instance, that the Brookings Institute has provided, it shows that the uh, average wealth for a white household is around $170,000 today versus the average wealth for a black household, uh, which is only about 17000 You see the huge disparity and you recognize that core to that is making sure that you have an opportunity to support uh, minority businesses, which drive a significant amount of economic growth in black and brown communities, uh, and that also create the sort of uh, income and wealth uh, sustainability that we believe is important for our economy. And so that's the value proposition that we have, not only as business leaders, 
but that we also then demonstrate to our shareholders, uh, demonstrating to them that we're able to get competitive pricing. Also, with uh, having a broader, more diverse supplier base, we're able to uh, see uh, a more diverse set of talent. And that's something that is ultimately important to all the key stakeholders uh, here at BMO. So that, like, there's clearly going to be benefits both for the businesses that have the su- supplier diversity programs as well as to the small businesses that are recipients, I guess, of business through these programs. If you could just maybe focus in, Eric, on, on the businesses themselves, so smaller businesses and, and, and local businesses what have you observed are the barriers to businesses like that becoming part of a big company supply chain? And, and what is it that a, a diversity and inclusion program can do to help them overcome those barriers? Sure. Uh, so I'll give an example. Um, there are quite often systemic barriers that quite often lead to uh, challenges for minority businesses uh, getting access. One, it's not having the relationships with the key decision makers within a large company that are making these purposing decisions. Two, uh, it's quite often not being given the opportunity to gain the experience. Uh, If you look, for instance, at, uh, say, a typical RFP, there may be a set of criteria uh, that makes it very difficult for a first-time architect to uh, gain a contract building uh, a new branch for BMO if they haven't done a branch before. And so being able to think about ways that we can build partnerships between some of our suppliers so that they can gain that experience, perhaps by working with uh, a majority firm, giving them access to our senior leaders through programs like BMO Elevate, which Christine has described, where we have brought together a group of diverse suppliers to provide the networking and the training and the access that is really important. I think that's absolutely critical. Another barrier that I think that exists as well is access to capital. And that's where it is definitely challenging for many minority businesses to have the line of credit and the revolver that they may need to invest in the growth and the opportunities to go after and pursue uh, a new business uh, or business relationship. That's why uh, at late last year, uh, we decided to uh, announce uh, BMO Empower, uh, which is a $5 billion, five-year commitment to helping to promote inclusive economic recovery through additional access to capital, direct investment, uh, and supporting small businesses, but also having a very targeted outreach to minority businesses to ensure that they have that access to capital that's really critical, particularly during a time of crisis. As we look at the stats right now and, and, the, and the many challenges that we have, we know that small businesses are hurting. Uh, for instance, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, about 20% of businesses, small businesses, announced that they were going to be closing their doors. That number was roughly 40 to 50% for minority-owned businesses. And so our ability, and, and as well as other companies, to use their purchasing power to support small businesses and to support diversity, uh, diversity through uh, their supply chain is absolutely critical to promoting an inclusive economic recovery. Christine, Eric mentioned RFP processes. Are you able to add a little bit of that, maybe with some specific examples about how the BMO RFP processes have changed in order to promote minority-owned vendors, for example, or just more diversity and inclusion in our supply chain? Yeah, absolutely. And if it's all right with you, Michael, I'll speak to generally kind of our overall sourcing processes as well as, well as the, the RFP piece. So we've got a while back, uh, a long while back, we put in place a uh, requirement that said 
look, you need to make sure that you're including some diverse representation in every RFP that you put out. So, you know, one of the the barriers, it does tend to be in a large organization, it's really easy to think, okay, well, those businesses are small. And so we want to go with the big ones that we know are going to be able to, to do stuff for us. And so there are, it's kind of a combination of changing your thinking and also putting some really pragmatic things in place that says, uh, you're going to do this every time. Get used to the idea that we need to be thinking this way. So we, we put that, that piece in place a while ago that said, yeah, you know what? You need to make sure that you have diverse representation in every RFP. My view is uh, that is a good piece, but to the point that I made earlier about we constantly want to be be raising our game, it is relatively easy. I'm not saying this happens a lot, but I'm sure it has happened in the past, where when you do have a diverse supplier that is uh, that is included in an RFP, inclusion in the RFP doesn't necessarily mean that the relationships are there. As, as Eric mentioned, or that the track record of, yeah, absolutely, we've worked with these guys before, we know they're going to do good work. Um, you know, we've always got a structured uh, response criteria that we put together with RFPs. And people are people. And so there are elements of, do I know for sure that these guys are going to do a good job because I've seen what they did before? That's always a bit of a an esoteric part of the process. So one of the reasons as we think about kind of the framework that we've put in place and why we launched our BMO Elevate uh, Diverse Supplier Development Program is that we're trying to get further ahead of the RFP process. So yes, we have the piece in there that says, you need to be sure that you're including some diverse representation. In addition to that, though, we're also trying to build some of those connections and remove some of the barriers in advance of the RFP so that things that might trip us up, like I don't know these guys, I haven't seen what they've done before, or have they ever worked with a big company? We have a lot of risk hurdles that we need to jump, etc. It particularly in high potential categories, a big chunk of the work that we're doing is trying to make sure that we get ahead of the curve so that for things that we know are coming, we're thinking about not only inclusion, but you know, what are the chances that that this firm will have to, to win the RFP or part of the RFP? So I think that's it. I think you need to have a pretty firm thing that says this will be part of how we we work. And also make sure that everybody's keeping in mind that we need to try and get ahead of the process enough so that it's not an easy thing to say, well, that's a small company. Let's just go with one of the, one of the bigger ones. I used to be a partner at a, at a big law firm. So I was on the other side of the, the coin trying to sell services to, to companies like, like BMO. And now being in-house, you know, we, we still do business with big accounting firms and consulting firms and law firms and, and other big businesses. How does supplier diversity and inclusion affect those kinds of relationships with bigger companies. I mean, I, I see it in terms of, you know, us having expectations for those types of companies that they have diverse teams, for example. Is, is that how it's done? Or, or what are your thoughts on, on that? Maybe I'll start with Christine with that question and, and then ask Eric as well. Sure, absolutely. You know, it's such a big topic. Uh, when we talk about our supplier diversity program, we are uh, we're really focused on working with um, diverse owned companies. And so I would say that that conversation with our larger suppliers focuses around around a couple of things. The first is 
saying, you know, this is an expectation that we hold of ourselves. It's an expectation that we hold of you as well. And seeing where there are opportunities that we can say part of what needs to be done that you are holding the the pen on on the large piece of work, we can carve out pieces of this and say, we'd like a team working with us. We want you to be the lead on the team, but we also want to make sure that we have we have other players in there. So we have that conversation. And in that way, it becomes more about partnership than about replacement. Um, and, you know, the, the, the nature of business is that the pie keeps growing. Uh, and so as we have new and larger pies, then we have different ways that, that we can slice them. So I think it's, it's definitely that conversation with our larger suppliers. A couple of other things there, you know, we don't, we don't want to get complacent in our supplier relationships. So just because, you know, BMO has been around for 200 years, I'm not sure we have a supplier that we've been working with for 200 years, but we do have suppliers that we've been working with for quite some time. But just because that's the way we did it in the past doesn't mean it's the way that we need to do it in the future. And so keeping our thinking fresh about how what is the optimal way to be structuring this business that we're doing is a, a big part of how we think about things. And then the last piece I'd mentioned on the on the topic of how when you start really thinking about diversity, it is huge. Um, we've had some good conversations about how do we understand the full scope of the impact that we have as we start uh, having this conversation all the time. And some of it is the ownership of the, the firms that we're working with. But some of it is the people that are managing the funds that we uh, that we invest in with our clients or the partners that we're working with at a consulting firm or a law firm. We had a great conversation with uh, with one of our senior execs about, you know, every time I, I have this company come in and present to me about something, it's a white male that comes and presents to me. And so that is outside of the core scope of the supplier diversity program, but it is part of what we're recommending to people that we have conversations about. You know, we need to say this stuff out loud and say our expectation is that the people that we are working with in many different ways is going to reflect the makeup of the communities that we work with. And maybe Eric, your perspective, you know, what would you recommend then to, you know, these bigger companies? Because I guess there's a risk of them crowding out new and and diverse companies that may actually be competitors with them. So what would you say they should, how should they think about this issue in a way where they're facilitating their clients' diversity programs, but also, you know, achieve, achieving perhaps their own positive social impacts? Sure. I, I think it's important, building on, on Christine's response, to think about supplier diversity in a broader context and more in the framework of business-to-business business diversity, um, because that's really how you achieve racial equity and economic justice. Um, as we have described sort of our core values, as we've described our strategic framework for how we're thinking about our supply chain, it's not a, it's not a quota system or a feel-good uh, sort of thing to do, uh, but it is focusing on excellence and making sure that regardless of whether it's a majority-owned company, whether it's a woman-owned company or a business that's owned by a minority a business owner or someone from the LGBT community, that they're bringing the innovation and the first-class services and partnership that is important for us that will enable us to better serve our, our, our customers and our community. So I, I really challenge um, you know, companies to think about that in a much broader context uh, than 
uh, perhaps just a you know supplier diversity program that is focused on construction and facility related requirements, but it goes much broader into how do we have that D to V diversity that is focused on uh, what the American dream stands for, and, and that's that's uh, uh, a dream and a promise for that everyone will have equal opportunity. Christine, you made the comment that what gets measured gets done, which is a real core driver of of a lot of sustainability programs. What are some of the concrete metrics that either you're using in in your program or businesses generally can use to gauge the the effect and the positive impacts of of their programs? I would say we try and look at both leading and, and lagging indicators. So the most important, the thing that trumps everything else is what are we actually spending? If we've had a lot of different conversations and we've had, to, you know, done a lot of outreach and we're not actually having an impact, then then that becomes more of that that feel good uh, kind of program, and we really want to make sure that we have impact. So the most important thing is here's your tier one, here's your tier two, and having those. We do tier one on a monthly basis, tier two on a quarterly basis so that we're not going out to our larger suppliers every month and asking them to to come back to us with pieces. But having a regular view of that is the bottom line. Beyond that, we do tend to look at a little bit more of your your leading indicators, um, which are earlier in the pipeline. So we do have a pipeline of opportunities. How many opportunities are we working? What do we think that the outcome of those opportunities is going to be? So that as we're headed towards the goals that we're working towards, do we think we're actually going to get there? Or do we think that these are a lot of good conversations that are that are a bit further out? And so, you know, tracking the number of opportunities that you're looking at would be would be a good piece. The other thing I would say that we really do uh, is understanding the portfolio of suppliers that we have. Uh, And so when we think about opportunities, we tend to go for here are the different kinds of things that tend to be opportunities in this area. But also we do have you know, our top 300 relationships that we look at, and we want to know what's the status of our conversation with each of those relationships? Can we be building partnerships with them to be driving more diverse spend? So I guess the the, the bottom line, obviously, is, is the results. Um, a big focus, I think, would be uh, additionally, some element of a, an activity or opportunity pipeline uh, that helps you understand if these are your goals, how are you going to get there? And Eric, you know, from the your vantage point, you know, overseeing a council focused on these types of issues, what in your view should the end game be? Like what's the, the broader vision of this from the perspective of a company that has a diversity and inclusion program? For me, the end game is seeing that it becomes uh, an integral part of our culture and our business practice. I think right now we are very targeted and focused on uh, kind of building out our strategic framework and delivering on the goals and and metrics. But when it starts to happen without um, the need for a council uh, and becomes just day-to-day practice that uh, we're looking at diverse suppliers for every RFP that goes out and uh, we're bringing in new relationships, that's a win-win for me. Very similar to how we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion in terms of our hiring practices. Um, we look at it from the standpoint of uh, making sure that we have a diverse slate of candidates, thinking about it from end to end, from recruiting all the way up to succession planning for uh, our senior leadership team. 
and then you see that you're moving a needle in terms of the, the metrics that you're able to achieve. When we're able to do that uh, in our supplier diversity initiative, we'll be able to clearly see how we have benefited uh, from that in terms of the services that we're receiving, but we'll also be able to see those uh, diverse businesses that are growing um, here in our, our markets and across our footprint across North America. Uh, we'll see that in terms of the number of small businesses that are diverse that are moving to the Fortune 500 list, for instance. As you look at our Fortune 500 list today, it's virtually nil when it comes to companies that are Black-owned. Uh, or owned by a, a Latinx uh, business owner. When we start to see that pipeline uh, coming forth, then we'll know that we're seeing success. And we'll have a, a stronger economy, a stronger community, and we'll have even more, uh, hopefully, uh, partnerships that we're able to build a banking relationship with as well. Christine, this is obviously an economy-wide topic, um, and convening is is therefore going to be really critical to to trying to achieve these goals. The work you're doing with the United Way, it's called the Inclusive Local Economic Opportunity Program. And you and I have worked on it a little bit, and you're taking a leadership role on the diversity and inclusion side of things. Can you talk a little bit about that partnership with the United Way and, and how it fits into the broader strategy around diversity and inclusion and why that topic of diversity and inclusion is something related to building up local economic opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So it's interesting. The the work we're doing on the uh, Inclusive Local Economic Opportunity Initiative with the United Way in Toronto is uh, similar to work that we've got going on in Chicago as well uh, with, with similar organizations. And a lot of what that says is that in many cases, places where there has been depressed opportunity, if you will, are geographically concentrated. And so you end up with neighborhoods where opportunity has not come knocking. <laughs> and uh, and when we think about a local economic opportunity, there are places that you can go that are absolutely full up with opportunity. And then there are places that you can go that are considerably, you know, have less opportunity coming their way. And so part of what we're trying to do with the ILIO work with the United Way, as well as with the other charter members, is to, to look at a few different levers and say, what might we be able to do that would bring some more opportunity into these uh, these neighborhoods? We're currently doing some work with uh, with the Golden Mile neighborhood in Toronto. And a good chunk of what my team is focused on is is helping to bridge the gap between large companies that are that have opportunities that need filling and small companies that might not be able to to have the access uh, or or the understanding of how to work with a larger company like ours. And so we're doing some work there to begin to bridge those gaps uh, and 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 you know narrow the space between the opportunity and the firms that might be able to do it in the hopes that we can create a model that is helpful not only in the golden mile but also can be lifted and shifted to other areas where uh, we, we might be able to do the same type of good. So we're still in the early days, it's really becoming clear as we as we work with the other charter holders about how much it's important to be able to build those that network of connections between larger companies and smaller companies that uh, that make it easier to make a purchasing decision uh, in the moment. So it's all about getting getting good runway there to to bring more opportunities. So the audience of this podcast are business leaders, investors, um, and others 
including people who have a focus on sustainability and also those that don't. I'm going to ask just uh, as we close here for each of you to give us your final thoughts on this topic of, of diversity and inclusion in procurement for those communities. So investors and, and, and business leaders, what final thoughts would you like to leave them with? Maybe Christine, we'll start with you. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I suspect that you will probably, you're always going to get pragmatic stuff from me and from Eric. I know he'll often have more to say with what is the impact of the work. I guess my very pragmatic piece here would be that I'm not sure this is work you can do perfectly. We are on a journey of improvement and every year we see different things that we can do differently. The most important things I would say are to start <laughs> and to start measuring. And there's lots of, uh, of areas out there I would really recommend connecting in with, uh, with some of the certifying bodies that can help with that process of getting started, a lot of conversations we have with, with larger organizations are around how do we help you take the next step? Because it is, it's difficult to, to do everything perfectly, but it's not as difficult as you might think to do the next indicated thing. And, and what about you, Eric? What would be your final thoughts for our, our audience? Sure. I think um, hopefully from this discussion, you can feel the, the sense of passion and urgency uh, that uh, Christine and I have and our entire leadership team here at BMO. Um, I think what is uh, most important that I would share is that it has to be an initiative that is uh, driven from the top down. Uh, it needs to start with uh, with the CEO and he or she will set the stage for that sort of transformative change. And then you have to be able to uh, marry that with a strong team and procurement and across your business where they share and that vision and the strategic framework that you've developed. That sort of comprehensive approach is absolutely essential for us as we come through this crisis. As I think about um, the city of Chicago, uh, which I, where I live, um, I think Chicago is one of the greatest cities uh, in our country, but yet we still face many challenges. We still have uh, the tale of two cities where Chicago is the most segregated city. Uh, if we're able to address the way that we support uh, minority and women-owned uh, businesses, that will go a long ways to really promoting the inclusive economic uh, recovery that we need. We'll see the direct benefit in other areas, whether it's education or crime. We'll see the direct benefit in terms of job creation and long-term sustainability for businesses. We'll start to see minority businesses that start out as a startup uh, and grow to become an Amazon or a Microsoft and we'll know that we've achieved success. That's a great closing thought. So tone from the top, proper resourcing, and really building it into the culture of the organization. Those are all really good pieces of advice. Well, I'd like to thank both of our guests for, for their time and would encourage um, anyone who's interested in more information about this to check out the BMO Diversity and Inclusion website. That's all for now. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. 
Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.